We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet up. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 132 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 1 Astronauts, Part 2. On my honor, I will do my best are the first eight words of the Scout Oath for the Boy Scouts of America. Individually, these words are short and simple. Collectively, however, they speak volumes and serve to inspire millions of boys to strive for excellence. Lieutenant Commander Roger Bruce Chaffee was a scout for whom the oath was more than just mere words. He took the pledge to heart and accepted the challenge to fully live the words of the oath. Whether he was meticulously handcrafting items from wood or training to be the youngest man ever to fly into space. Chaffee always did his best by putting 100% of himself into the effort. In the early part of the 20th century, various illnesses claimed many lives. One of the most dreaded of the diseases was scarlet fever. In January 1935, Donald Chaffee, came down with a case of scarlet fever and immediately was placed under quarantine. Because the disease was considered to be highly contagious and very serious, his wife Blanche was told that she would not be allowed to deliver her baby at the local hospital. Officials simply could not risk exposing other patients to the illness. Additionally, she could not give birth in their own home because of the risk of infection to both mother and newborn. Therefore, Blanche and her two-year-old daughter, Donna, moved in with her parents at her home in nearby Grand Rapids, Michigan. Roger Bruce Chaffee was born two weeks later on February 15, 1935. Toward the end of the month, Don Chaffee, was removed from quarantine and brought his family back home to Greenville, Michigan, where they lived for the next seven years. Early in his career, Don Chaffee had been a barnstorming pilot who flew a Waco 10 biplane. He was a regular sight at fairgrounds and made a bit of extra money on the side by transporting passengers. He also piloted planes for parachute jumpers. Later, Don worked for Army Ordnance in Greenville, and in 1942, he was transferred to the Dolor Jarvis plant in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he served as Chief Inspector of Army Ordnance. Don shared his love of flying with his son, and at the age of seven, Roger enjoyed his first ride in an airplane. 
when the family went on a short excursion over Lake Michigan. Although it was a relatively brief flight, Roger was absolutely thrilled. To satisfy his continued interest in planes, Don set up a card table in the living room where he and Roger would create model airplanes piece by piece. By the time he was nine, Roger would point to a plane flying overhead and predict, I'll be up there in one of those someday. Roger Chaffee established himself as a well-rounded individual at an early age. He loved making and flying model airplanes, but he also enjoyed his electric train set, which snaked throughout the living room. He inherited a love and appreciation for guns from his grandfather, with whom he would spend his hours target shooting at a nearby gravel pit or cleaning and polishing their firearms. Roger became interested in music in the fifth grade, participating in the citywide chorus and playing the French horn in the school band. He later switched to cornet and eventually progressed to trumpet. Once he reached high school, he put his musical talent to work by forming a band with several other boys, which hired itself out to play at post-game dances. Although his parents provided him with a small allowance as compensation for chores done around the house, Roger always had a flair for finding ways to make a little extra money. He was on the road every morning by 5 o'clock delivering newspapers. Some of his elderly customers greatly valued his dependability and hired him to do odd jobs and run errands. At the age of 13, Chaffee branched out his interest again by becoming a member of a local Boy Scout troop. He soon began earning merit badges. After the first year, he had acquired a total of 10 badges and was awarded the Order of the Arrow. Numerous other merit badges followed, and by the time Chaffee was a high school junior, he had earned most every possible badge. Roger achieved the rank of Eagle Scout and later was presented with the bronze and gold palms, which signified that he had earned additional badges after becoming an Eagle Scout. Throughout his years in scouting, Roger was an enthusiastic participant at the summer camp, gaining many practical skills in camping, cooking, and outdoor living. He served one year as an assistant waterfront director teaching inexperienced scouts how to swim. His scouting experience and business sense also proved useful in his after-school job at the Boy Scout section of a local department store. By the time Roger was 14, he had developed an interest in electronics engineering and tinkered with various radio projects in his spare time. In high school, he received excellent grades and maintained a 92 average. Vocational tests showed that Roger's strongest abilities were in the area of science. He also scored high mechanically and artistically. Mathematics and science were his favorite subjects, with chemistry being particularly appealing. Once the family switched to a gas heating system, Roger transformed the outdated coal bin area into his own private workshop, where he spent countless hours experimenting with his chemistry set. 
By the time he was a junior in high school, he was leaning toward a career as a nuclear physicist. As a senior, he'd established a lofty goal for himself. He wanted to someday have his name written in history books. Before the world's superpowers took their first halting steps into space, Roger Chaffee had shared his dream of being the first man on the moon with his closest friends. On June 11, 1953, Roger Chaffee graduated in the top fifth of his class from Central High School in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He applied for scholarships from Annapolis, Rhodes, and the Naval Reserve Officers Training Corps. But since he was not yet ready to make the required permanent commitment to the U.S. Navy, he felt obliged to turn down his appointment to Annapolis. The Rhodes Scholarship was not available to candidates who desired to major in engineering. Naval ROTC offered Chaffee a Naval Scholarship, and in September 1953, he began the fall semester at the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. After living in the campus men's dorm for three weeks, he moved into the Phi Kappa Sigma fraternity house. He made the dean's list and completed his freshman year with a B-plus average. By the end of his first year at the Institute, Chaffee had decided to combine his love of flying with his aptitude in science and mathematics in order to pursue a degree in aeronautical engineering. Having made this decision, Roger applied to Purdue University in Lafayette, Indiana, which was well known for its quality aeronautical engineering program. His request to transfer from the Illinois Institute of Technology was approved. Purdue accepted Chaffee as a transfer student for the 1954 Fall Assembly. In the summer of 1954, Chaffee was scheduled to report for duty on board the battleship Wisconsin for an eight-week voyage as part of the Naval ROTC program. In order to qualify for the duty, he was required to take extra training and complete a variety of physical tests. He performed poorly during the eye examination. One eye was so weak that he was nearly failed on the spot. However, the attending physician gave him a break and told him that he would be allowed to retake the test the next morning. Passing the eye test was critical. If Chaffee did not pass the examination, he never would fly professionally. Roger spent part of the long night walking along the shores of Lake Michigan before dropping off to sleep. He offered numerous prayers for successful test results. The exam was repeated the next morning. Chaffee passed with flying colors, and the attending physician certified him to participate in the Naval ROTC program aboard the Wisconsin. During the two-month cruise, Chaffee docked in far-off ports in England, Scotland, France, and the island of Cuba. Chaffee found himself with some extra time on his hands between the end of his eight-week naval duty and the start of his new semester at Purdue. To fill the gap, his father found him a job operating a gear cutter. The gears were molded from soft black iron, and each day he came out at the end of his shift looking like a coal miner. Although he appreciated earning the extra money, Roger decided this job was not for him. 
In the fall of 1954, Chaffee arrived in Lafayette, Indiana, and immediately sought out the Purdue chapter of his old fraternity. He lived at the frat house for the duration of his studies at the university. A job waiting on tables in one of the women's residences provided him with an income, but Roger disliked working in such a prissy environment where the character and decor definitely catered to the more feminine taste. He quickly found a different job by putting his mechanical and artistic skills to use as a draftsman for a small business near the campus. He remained with this position throughout his sophomore year. As a junior engineering student, Chaffee applied for a position in the mathematics department at Purdue and was hired to teach freshman math classes. In September 1955, at the beginning of his junior year, Chaffee went on a blind date with a young woman from Oklahoma City named Martha Horn. His first impression of his date was that she was a naive southern girl. Martha, a college freshman, considered Roger to be a handsome but smart-aleck upperclassman. In spite of their first impressions of one another, they continued to date throughout the rest of the semester, and by the end of the Christmas vacation, Martha had agreed to wear Roger's fraternity pin. Chaffee introduced Martha to his parents in the fall of 1956 and confided to his father, Dad, I've gone out with a lot of girls, but this is it. Someday, I'll marry Martha. He followed through on his prediction and proposed to Martha Horn on October 12, 1956. The couple set a wedding date for the summer of 1957. Chaffee's second naval tour took place at the end of his junior year on board the destroyer USS Perry. The points of destination for this cruise were the Scandinavian countries of Denmark and Sweden. Chaffee was unable to find temporary employment to finish out the summer break, so he began crafting a large model of a ship called the Cuddy Sark to pass the time. During his final semester at the university, Chaffee began flight training as a Naval ROTC Air Cadet flying a Cessna 172. He was judged to be ready to fly solo on March 29, 1957, only 24 days after making his first flight out of the Purdue University Airport. After receiving additional dual and solo flight time, he took his private flight test on May 24, 1957, and passed with an above-average grade of 86%. David Cress, who administered the test, recommended Chaffee for further military flight training. On June 2, 1957, Chaffee was awarded a B.S. in Aeronautical Engineering from Purdue University. He graduated with distinction and received a key to the National Society of Engineers as a result of his solid academic performance. Although his undergraduate days were over, Roger had every intention of continuing his education. Chaffee completed his naval training on August 22, 1957, and was commissioned as an ensign in the U.S. Navy. Two days later, he traveled to Oklahoma City for his wedding to Martha Horn. After a 14-day honeymoon trip to Colorado, 
Chaffee was assigned to temporary duties in Norfolk, Virginia. In November 1957, he reported for military flight training in Pensacola, Florida, where he learned to fly the T-34 and the T-28. Later, he was transferred to Kingsville, Texas, to train on the F-9F Cougar jet. He advanced quickly and was scheduled to begin advanced flight instruction in November 1958, one day before he left for his aircraft carrier training. He became the proud father of a healthy baby girl, Cheryl Lynn. Although Roger did not like the thought of leaving wife and newborn daughter, he realized that this particular training was critical to career advancement. Accordingly, he reported for aircraft carrier training duty on November 18, 1958. Chaffee found landing an aircraft on a carrier to be a challenge, stating that setting that big bird down on the flight deck was like landing on a postage stamp. He compared night flight to getting shot into a bottle of ink. But, Chaffee completed his flight training and won his wings in early 1959. Roger was given a variety of assignments and participated in numerous training duties over the next few years. He worked extensively on the A3D photography reconnaissance plane. Because of his complete understanding of the plane, he was granted permission to fly it, thus becoming one of the youngest pilots allowed to fly an A3D while all of the additional experience and training proved to be very good for Chaffee's naval career, it did require him to make sacrifices at home. Although he had managed to be present for the birth of his daughter, Chaffee was in Africa on a training mission when his son, Stephen, was born on July 3, 1961. He was able to spend a brief period of time with his family upon his return, but soon shipped out to California to attend safety and reliability school. This particular training helped him in his duties as a safety and quality control officer at the Heavy Photographic Squadron 62 at the Jacksonville Naval Air Station. One of his primary duties was to create a quality control manual geared for maintaining flight squadron operations. His guidebook was extremely precise and some considered it to be over-exacting. However, others respected his judgment and knew that he had their welfare at heart. And they were right. Chaffee already had lost more than one of his naval buddies in flying accidents. And as a result, he became very aware that there is only room for one mistake. You can buy the farm only once. For Roger, there was only one way, the perfect way. Nothing less would do. In spite of his drive for perfection, Squadron 62 overwhelmingly supported Chaffee, in part because he never asked the man to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. Another of Chaffee's duties while serving with the VAP 62 Squadron was to photograph Cape Canaveral, which was gearing up to become the launch area for the newly created manned space program. He also flew numerous flights to Cuba. 
often as many as three a day. During one such mission, he took important aerial photographs which gave crucial documentation of the Cuban missile buildup. When he was not flying for the Navy, he gave private flying instructions to civilians in exchange for his personal use of their plane. Additionally, he began taking graduate-level courses in engineering. Chaffee ultimately knew the direction in which he wanted to head, and he knew how to get there. Ever since the first seven Mercury astronauts were named, he had been keeping up his studies. At the end of each year, the Navy asked its officers what type of duty they would aspire to. Each year, Roger indicated he wanted to train as a test pilot for astronaut status. When NASA began recruiting for its third group of astronauts in mid-1962, Roger Chaffee became part of an initial pool of 1,800 applicants who sought one of the coveted positions opening up in the astronaut corps. In late 1962, Roger was given the opportunity to pursue a master's degree in reliability engineering in earnest. He gladly accepted the invitation and moved his family to Dayton, Ohio, in order to study at the Air Force Institute of Technology at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. While keeping up his studies, Chaffee continued to participate in the astronaut cadet testing. By mid-June of 1963, the number of pilots competing for the spot had dropped to 271. Various physical and psychological tests were administered repeatedly. This time, Chaffee experienced no difficulty with the eye examinations. As the weeks dragged by, psychologists continued to probe their minds by administering inkblot tests and personality inventories. They rated their intellectual capability with standard IQ tests. Physicians poked, prodded, x-rayed, and tested each man and managed to violate virtually every part of their body from head to toe in the process. No anatomical part or function was left unchecked. Chaffee stated, quote, They managed to thoroughly humiliate us at least three times a day. End quote. After what seemed to be an eternity, the candidates completed the grueling series of qualifying exams and returned home to wait anxiously for NASA to complete its selection process. To ease the tension of waiting for a telephone call that might never come, Roger went on a brief hunting trip to Michigan. When he returned home on October 14th, Chaffee learned that NASA had indeed called while he was away hunting. Upon contacting headquarters in Houston, he was told he had been selected as one of America's newest astronauts. On October 18th, 1963, Roger Chaffee flew to Houston and was officially named to the Astronaut Corps. After spending Christmas holidays with family in Michigan and Oklahoma, the Chaffees went about the business of moving to Houston, Texas, home of the new manned space center. Having been transferred so many times before, moving was second nature to them by now. They found temporary living quarters in a duplex apartment in Clear Lake City, the family remained in the apartments for several months while Roger drafted plans for their new house and finalized arrangements 
on a building lot in Nassau Bay. Construction of their yellow brick home began in March and was completed shortly after. The house seemed to signal his personality. Well-planned, modern, independent. White rugs and a Grecian bathtub. A lush but spick-and-span formality. Although Chaffee always wanted to fly and perform adventurous flying tasks, he was realistic about his new role as an astronaut. He knew that he wouldn't be just a throttle jockey. It would be an engineering job, a tremendous scientific challenge. However, Chaffee and the other 13 rookies soon discovered that what 16 other men had learned already there was much more to being an astronaut than simply knowing how to fly and work a slide rule. Training for the Third Corps of Astronauts began in earnest in 1964. It was estimated that each astronaut would spend 50 hours a week for two to five years training for a single flight. The initial phase focused on academics. The instruction was intense with various concepts and procedures from assorted professional fields crammed into countless hours of college-level lectures. Having stretched their intellects, the astronauts moved into the second phase of instruction, or contingency training. The purpose of the survival exercises was to prepare crews to handle unexpected emergencies such as landing in remote areas or a crisis after splashdown. Chaffee's introduction to the second phase of training took place in Panama, where he and his colleagues were dropped into the middle of the jungle by helicopter and paired off to fend for themselves. Thanks to his Boy Scout training, Roger had more outdoor living experience than some of the other men. Still, jungle survival was a challenge, because the men carried only their parachutes and survival kits. They needed to make do with whatever indigenous food items they could scrounge up. Roger managed to find a variety of edibles during his three-day trek. He described the hearts of palm trees as delicious, snakes and iguanas as not-so-delicious, and crabs and land snails as just plain terrible. Having managed to survive for three days in a jungle environment, Chaffee and his peers moved on to dealing with a different type of contingency plan, survival in desert terrain. To achieve the maximum effect, the training took place in the desert near Reno, Nevada during the month of August when ground temperatures soared to 160 degrees. Wearing only long underwear, shoes, and loose-fitting robes which they had fashioned from parachutes, the astronauts paired off for two days in the scorching deserts. Lizards and snakes provided most of their meals. Inflated life rafts served as mattresses and parachutes were rigged up as tents. Once Chaffee had settled into his new home, he commented, quote, We're real cozy. Of course, it could use some wallpaper. End quote. The final phase of instruction was classified as operational training and focused on exposing astronauts to the various equipment and systems associated 
with the spacecraft and boosters as well as the physical sensations and experiences related to spaceflight. Accordingly, Chaffee and his colleagues spent hours perfecting their skills in spacecraft simulators and learning how to handle problems that might occur during an actual flight. They rehearsed water egress procedures and rescue techniques. Their bodies were prepared to withstand the high G-forces they would encounter during launch and re-entry. Flights on board Air Force cargo planes allowed them to experience brief periods of weightlessness. Techniques and movements used in extravehicular activity were refined during underwater training. They visited manufacturing plants to keep an eye on spacecraft production. One of Chaffee's most valuable training experiences came in the form of serving as one of the capsule communicators, CAPCOM, for the Gemini 4 mission in June 1965. He relayed information back and forth between crew members, Jim McDivitt and Ed White, and the Director of Flight Crew Operations, Christopher Kraft. Chaffee served in this capacity with Eugene Cernan and Chief Capcom, Gus Grissom, at the recently completed Manned Space Center in Houston. Chaffee was also paired up with Gus Grissom, to fly chase planes up to a level of 50,000 feet in order to take pictures of the launch of unmanned Saturn 1B rockets. Less than one week after Neil Armstrong and David Scott completed their Gemini 8 flight, NASA named the astronauts who would fly the first Apollo Earth orbit mission. Competition for the three positions had been intense, with each man wanting a spot so badly he could taste it. Chaffee was no exception. He had been training specifically for spaceflight for nearly two and a half years and had yet to be named to a mission. He wanted his first flight to coincide with the first flight of the Apollo-Saturn spacecraft. When the preliminary announcement came on March 21, 1966, Chaffee discovered that he would be getting that for which he had been hoping. NASA had named Gus Grissom as commander, Ed White as senior pilot, and Roger Chaffee would complete the crew as pilot. James McDivitt, David Scott, and Russell Swigert were assigned as members of the backup crew. Roger enthusiastically summed up his feelings about his role. Quote, I am extremely pleased to be named I think it will be a lot of fun, end quote. Chaffee beamed with pride when Grissom made his first public statement as Apollo 1 commander. Quote, I think we have a good crew, and I think it will be a good flight, end quote. Chaffee was asked if there was anything scary about a first space flight. This was his reply. Oh, I don't like to say anything scary about it. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns, of course, and a lot of problems that could develop or might develop, and they'll have to be solved. And that's what we're there for. This is our business, to find out if this thing will work for us. Uh, I don't think it'll be uh, probably a whole lot worse than a guy that's making a first test flight on a new airplane. Now, I've never done that, so I don't know. I think everybody feels a little apprehensive, uh, when they count down, I don't see how you could help but be a little bit excited. But I don't think anybody is uh, 
you know, I, I don't like to use the word scary. I, I definitely think you're apprehensive and you're considering what's involved there. You're thinking about it. But you know how to handle it and take care of it and do the job. Later in December of 1966, Chaffee was interviewed by Jules Bergman. Here's a clip. Despite the risks, which they all knew only too well, there were and are certain advantages to being an astronaut. Roger Chaffee explained to me what he wanted to gain out of his spaceflight training and experience. I asked if there were any advantages to being a young, new astronaut. Well, I don't know if it gives you any special advantages. Uh, I think NASA policy is... Uh... Well, I really hate to say what NASA policy is, but I think I could be around to fly for quite a few more years yet. And as to how far I want to go, I want to go as far as uh, NASA goes in, during my useful time as a pilot to them. Uh, I'd like to go on a moon flight, and if we go to Mars, I'd like to go on that. Apollo 1 was planned to be an open-ended flight, which could last up to two weeks. The purpose was to test and evaluate all major spacecraft systems as well as the ground tracking and control facilities. The prime and backup crews threw themselves into the intense training schedules. Three days after the crew was first announced, Chaffee flew out to the North American Aviation Plant in Downey, California to check out production of the Apollo spacecraft. Chaffee had witnessed the manufacture and assembly of the Gemini spacecraft. However, this was an entirely different situation. Chaffee said, quote, We're not talking generalities anymore. That's my spacecraft. End quote. Over the next several months, Chaffee and the crew would come to know every square inch of spacecraft 12. Chaffee is quoted as saying, quote, we know it. We know that spacecraft as well as we know our own homes, you might say. Boy, we know every little rivet, wire, and electrical terminal in it practically and all its idiosyncrasies. End quote. During the months of training, the crew members worked closely together, gaining insight into individual strengths, habits, and personalities in the process. Chaffee established himself as a tireless and meticulous workhorse, the self-appointed secretary for the trip, who answered the endless questions when Gus and Ed got fed up. A constant tease to them, quick with the barb, with the quiet, off-hand comeback. In addition, Roger proved himself to be extremely capable and knowledgeable in his field, Gus Grissom soon recognized and came to admire his pilot's engineering skills. Grissom is quoted as saying, quote, Roger is one of the smartest boys I've ever run into. He's just a good engineer. There's no other way to explain it. When he starts talking to engineers about their systems, he can just tear those guys apart. I've never seen anyone like him. He's really a great boy. End quote. In turn, Chaffee greatly admired both Grissom and White for their own accomplishments and abilities. However, he developed a special closeness with Gus. Chaffee soon adopted a variety of mannerisms and body languages that were uniquely Grissom's. He began to pepper his speech with several of the colorful words and phrases that Gus often used. Of course, other astronauts noticed Chaffee's mimicry 
and teased him relentlessly about it. Yet, although he admired the veteran members of the crew, Chaffee never doubted his own abilities. When asked if he felt secure under the wings of two experienced spacemen, Oh yes, but I don't think it's because they've flown and I haven't. I'd feel secure taking it up all by myself, because we've trained enough for every job. You feel secure because you know what you're doing. Christmas 1966 also gave Roger the opportunity to present his wife with a very special gift. The crew members had designed a pen for each of their wives, which they had planned to take with them during their flight on Apollo 1. But, in their excitement over the upcoming mission, they caved in and gave the pens as Christmas gifts instead. Since they had spoiled their own surprise, immediately after Christmas they had gold charms designed that they secretly planned to take with them into space and then present them to their wives. Each unique little charm was an exact duplicate of the Apollo 1 command and service modules with a little diamond representing the astronaut position in the craft. January 1967 found the crew involved nearly full-time with the final round of pre-flight testing. In spite of his past technical and flying experience, Roger Steele was tagged as the rookie because he had no space flights to his credit. His solid accomplishments seemed to pale when placed next to Grissom and White's. His boyish looks and young age were also obstacles. When asked to assess Chaffee as a future spaceman, Gus Grissom, who greatly valued Roger's expertise, could only offer an educated guess regarding Chaffee's upcoming performance. Quote, Of course, Roger hasn't had any experience flying in space, and we don't know what he'll be like. I'm sure he'll be okay. End quote. Apollo 1 would not be merely Chaffee's ticket to getting his name in the history books. Apollo 1 would allow him, for the first time, to prove himself worthy of the title of astronaut that had been bestowed upon him. On January 27, 1967, as Chaffee entered the spacecraft for the last plugs-out test, I wonder if he remembered his life philosophy that had brought him to this point. The first eight words of the Boy Scout Oath. On my honor, I will do my best. Because that's exactly what he did. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.